You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everyone. This is my first time in the chair running radiotherapy, and so it might be a little bumpy from time to time. Kent is sitting there behind the desk looking decidedly... Um, uh, Amused. <laughs> so I hope you'll all forgive me, listeners. If we, if we don't quite keep to time, I'm going to do my very best, however. I wanted to talk and catch up just about the flu because we've had a terrible flu season this year. <clears throat> I had my flu vaccine, just like nearly every other doctor working in the public health system. But even so, I was felled at least a couple of times by some really hideous viruses and luggies, and I'm not alone. So um, certainly the news from the chief health officer for Victoria is that this has been a really terrible flu season and that lots and lots of people have gotten unwell. So I suppose um, I just wanted to urge people to take the basic precautions to try and avoid getting sick and to try and avoid infecting other people this season even though here we are at the end of August I feel like I shouldn't be having this conversation but yet the flu season continues so basic hand hygiene um, covering your mouth and your nose if you're going to cough and sneeze trying to stay away from people who are really vulnerable and that includes people um, who have other major health problems the older people and the younger people and people who are otherwise vulnerable so um, those people can get very ill with the flu, whereas for people like me and you, Dr Moto and USK, um, who might just spend a week in bed um, <clears throat> trying, to, trying to throw off a horrible cold, some people get really very ill. And it's not just the consequences of the flu itself, it's what you get after that, so bacterial pneumonias and ear infections and things like that. Thank you for including me in that because at my advanced age I'm probably heading into the, the risk group where I'm more at uh, risk than other people. But uh, it is a timely reminder that they're still saying that despite us being close to the end of the flu season, if you haven't had your jab, there's still time to do it and get some meaningful protection from it. So uh, if you're concerned about what we're hearing about people getting terribly ill, uh, still uh, time to get immunised. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the CSIRO has been putting out some um, a, a quiz for people to educate themselves on what colds and flu really are and, and, and how you can get them and how you can prevent yourself from getting them. So it's over there on their blog. But did you know that if you go to bed with wet hair, you don't get the flu? I was surprised. That sounds like a medical myth, I've got to say. <laughs> I can't believe that having wet hair confers meaningful immunity. <laughs> oh, no, if I, if I could... Hang on, let me clarify... The belief is if you go to bed with wet hair that you get the flu, apparently is not true. Oh, okay. Yes. yes. I'm glad. Okay. Did you th- that would have been a segment all on its own if that was the case. That can, would have been quite, a, quite an advance in medical knowledge. Can, can you get immunised against the man flu? What confers immunity from that? I think gender. <laughs> not much you can do about that now, I don't think. Having your own man cave is protective for the man flu. Oh, yes, I'm sure other germs lurk in the man cave, though, that are probably more dangerous than uh, the standard flu virus. And, and then the last time I checked, as are meat pies and, um, you know, regular gatherings with the boys down at the pub, those are also protective for the man flu. Uh, mm. Learn more on the CSIRO blog. <laughs> the other practice that I have, al- I have always wanted to uh, challenge or at least think about scientifically is um, the practice in uh, particularly Eastern Asian countries where uh, people rut- regularly wear face masks 
um, when they go outside in uh, winter months, flu season, or if they themselves are afflicted with some kind of a virus to try and not um, transmit um, the virus and, re- uh, you know, reduce how contagious they are. I wonder if there's any ever any science about that. It's interesting. It should, it should make a difference, shouldn't it? You would think. The practice only really seemed to strike me, and I've travelled through Asia a fair bit over the years, but since the, the swine flu outbreak or the first outbreak of avian flu about 10 years ago, that's when I started pe- noticing people in Asia wearing uh, face masks. I'm, I'm wondering how much of it is cultural, because what I've read about it is that, uh, you know, Asian cultures, you know, particularly the Japanese and the Chinese, are very conscious about not wanting to transmit germs to other people. So a lot of people will wear the face masks when they're unwell. It's not necessarily to stop them catching something. Do do you know much about that? Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, It is very much about, okay, I'm not feeling the best. I'm not going to pass it on. It's more a sort of a sense of cultural courtesy than anything else. Um, But I'm looking at this from the scientific scientific perspective to see if it does actually um, attenuate um, the spread um, of viruses and, and, and flu. Well, I guess there's some scientific evidence in that it's part of, uh, you know, universal contagious disease precautions when we're working in hospitals. You know, we gown and glove and we mask when we go in to see somebody who's in isolation, presumably because there's evidence that that does some good. So if, the, if that's the basis, that evidence should translate out into the general public setting. Mm-hmm. It is a little off-putting, though, when you're standing next to someone who's wearing a face mask, you're like, oh goodness. Yeah, next thing, Pauline Hanson will be wearing a face mask into <laughs> Parliament and demanding that they be outlawed. You know. right. Well, I mean, it makes me think TB, actually. Um, that's, that's my thought when someone stands next to me wearing a face mask, but that's just because I've worked in infectious diseases, I suppose. We need to get you um, on a fellowship to Tokyo or something, you know. Yeah. And, and desensitise me. Yeah, desensitise mm. you. Yeah. Um, forget about the graded um, desensitisation, just throw you into <laughs> a Tokyo subway during peak hour in winter and a fifth of the commuters are wearing face masks. Wow, gosh. And then you'll feel strange next time you come back here and you go through this, the city loop and everyone is coughing and spluttering and no one is wearing a face mask. Yeah, I already feel pretty angry about that, actually. But I feel like they should be home in bed rather than going out on public transport. Dr Moto, you had something else you wanted to talk about just with regard to um, healthcare equity and access in, in health systems around the world. Can I ask you about that, please? Yes, absolutely. So um, this is uh, news that has uh, come out um, just about a month ago where a stat, um, study conducted by uh, a United States think tank called the Commonwealth Fund, sounds a bit funny, um, compared the healthcare systems of 11 high-income countries to measure performance in five key domains that all translate to access and quality of care and efficiency. Now, um, Australia used to um, do extremely well in those rankings. Last year, we were number one. This year, we uh, dropped to second place um, and um, behind the United Kingdom. Um, it probably comes to some comes as a surprise to people. It certainly came as a surprise to me. But as I read the article, it certainly did make sense. I mean, a lot of things we do very well, um, things like efficiency, things like um, quality outcomes, um, evidence-based treatments. We come out um, very well uh, on top um, consistently, but it's actually an equitability and um, access to care that sort of stumps us a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. I'm surprised actually that Canada's not up there because, I mean, they have a very similar situation to the NHS, don't they, that there's it's universal public ac- access to treatment. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, Canada is ranked number 10, um, just on top of the United... Uh, number 9, I should say, um, just on top of France and the United States. Oh. Yeah, and even countries like Norway and Switzerland are um, ranked 5th and 6th. You're presenting this as a, as a bit of a big problem for Australia, but at the end of the day, to finish number 2, you know, uh, there's, what, 206 countries in the world or something like that. Uh, we're not doing too bad if we're number 2 in the world, are we? I would agree with you on that one, SK. Um, I th- certainly think that two is better than um, number 20, um, if, it, if it goes down that far. But uh, I think um, the main message um, that I certainly got from the article was uh, the fact that equity um, is starting to become a bit of a problem in our healthcare system. Um, the public health system is very much strained and constantly operating at about 120% um, capacity. Um, There is capacity in the private system um, as well as increasing um, numbers of practitioners as well as patients accessing care through the um, the private system. Um, But uh, the the private system is actually very expensive to run. Um, And inefficient, right? It can be inefficient because they're quite uh, individually siloed Mm, yeah, uh, I, I think it's really interesting, particularly also in the context of all the complaints about the NHS in England. You know, you constant constant stream of complaints through the Guardian about um, difficulties with wait lists and with um, you know, as you say, strain on the on the public system, and yet it is ranked at the best in the world, which is not too bad, really. Is uh, is it not too bad or is it not too good? You know, just, <laughs> Maybe it's the best we've got, just, but just, it's not fabulous. Despite all of these terrible complaints, it's still number one. What does that say about the rest of the world? Well, indeed. Yeah. That's a good point. I think I, I, particularly what I find issue with, um, I would say, is uh, unbeknownst to, I suppose, a lot of people, our private system is actually, to a large extent, publicly funded. Mm. Um, particularly, you know, all the outpatient consultations people have with um, general practitioners and specialists, which still accounts for the bulk of um, our um, uh, care episodes with practitioners. So what I mean by that is if you take 100 people and over the past average week, um, let's say 20 people have had contact with a health professional, 18 17 to 18 of those people would have seen a patient, a a doctor in their rooms and then gone home that day. Mm -hmm. Only two or three would have actually been admitted into hospital. So the bulk of our um, contact and care episodes with health professionals are still on the outpatient basis. Um, And that is two thirds, three quarters publicly funded. People go and see a specialist and then they pay the bill and then they go and get a significant rebate back from Medicare, not from their private health insurance. That actually argues in favour of equity, surely, because it suggests that, uh, you know, even people who are on lower incomes or who don't have private health insurance can still access a private specialist. In fact, you know, one of the great myths about private insurance is that it covers you to see a private specialist in their rooms. It doesn't. It just covers you for for hospital care. So in essence, the public system funds all private specialist consultations through the Medicare rebate. And to me, that seems a good thing for equity. I think it is a fantastic thing. And I certainly think that that should continue. Um, The issue, though, is when um, the private patients then follow the same practitioner and receives inpatient care, let's say they consult a orthopaedic surgeon, um, and then they get admitted to hospital for a hip replacement. um, And then that's a private... and, and it's a private admission. It's a very, very costly um, uh, um, um, expenditure when it gets to that point. Yeah, and I certainly see equity issues come into play in, in our specialty in psychiatry because, uh, you know, as, as a 
practitioner in private practice, I see people uh, regularly who would benefit from a hospital admission and have the luxury of being able to admit them. If I were working in the public system, you'd see plenty of people who might benefit from being in hospital, but uh, they're not going to get a bed the way our public system and the psychiatry services are overloaded. You know, you've got to be uh, homicidal or, frankly, psychotic or suicidal to uh, to actually get a Guernsey for care in the public system, and that's a, a disgrace. Yes, I would agree with that. And um, as far as mental health services go, um, the private system um, is probably less resourced and geared to deal with severe um, acuity problems. Um, but by the same token, a lot of people who cannot afford private health insurance have got low-grade, um, I suppose, less acute um, uh, disorders of mental distress, and they need to access um, these services, but they can't actually get in because they're considered too low threshold to receive care through the public system. So again, um, it's an equity issue. Yeah, part of that's a legislative problem. I mean, I think the private system could gear itself up to deal with very severe mentally ill people, but uh, private hospitals are excluded from mental health legislation because you can't admit somebody involuntarily to a private hospital. And I see the logic behind that because there's a conflict of interest in a private practitioner uh, involuntarily treating somebody and putting them in hospital uh, and that's a situation that they benefit financially from. So I think that's an important safeguard in our system. But uh, there are valid reasons, I think, why private hospitals don't take very severely ill, uh, mentally ill people. Mm. That's such a big conversation. I think we could talk for a lot longer about that, but I, I feel that we should keep to time because, you know, that's my job today. Um, also, you know, not, not talking over the top of you all, that's also my job. Right now, though, I have to talk about something which I think is probably one of the biggest bits of news in certainly pregnancy care that I've heard about in a long time. It's uh, an article which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but actually comes from our very own Victor Chang Cardiac Research Centre in Sydney. And it, it talks about the, the possibility that we might be able to really improve the general health of pregnant women um, and thereby improve the the health of their fetuses and hopefully reduce the rate of miscarriage in the early phases of pregnancy. So I might just get right into it because I think it's amazing. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, even in a very healthy population, there's a rate of congenital malformations, including major malformations to the heart and the great vessels and the spine of about sort of 2 to 3%. Uh, and that really hasn't changed in the last sort of 20 or 30 years. We also know that there's quite a high rate of spontaneous miscarriage in the first three months of pregnancy. can range up to sort of 20 to 25%, which is huge loss um, and, and very tragic for the, the people involved. So I suppose those two things would be hopefully a focus of research going forward. And in this particular article that was published, it seems like there might be an avenue of research that's just opened up. What they did was um, these researchers had a look at several consanguineous couples um, and their offspring. So just to um, clarify for people out there who aren't familiar with that terminology, consanguineous couples are couples who are genetically related who then go on to have children together. Unfortunately, these couples had children with quite significant um, deficits in terms of their cardiac malformations and also spinal malformations, and some of those malformations weren't really compatible with life beyond the first year. <coughs> Excuse me. I was talking before about the cold and flu, and I think I might maybe be succumbing again, which is terrible. <laughs> um, these particular couple's children um, obviously suffered from these abnormalities, and what the researchers then did was they had a look at the genetic 
um, similarities between the couples and analyse their DNA. What they found was that there were some common deficits in the metabolism of very common uh, vitamin, vitamin B3, niacin. So uh, what they then did was they created a mouse model of this kind of vitamin deficit. They created mice who, who couldn't um, metabolise effectively um, niacin and they also then deprived those mice of a dietary source of niacin during pregnancy. And what they then found was that these mice had offspring which with very severe vertebral and cardiac defects quite similar to those which they'd found in the consanguineous couples and they also had an extremely high rate of spontaneous miscarriage. So that's not conclusive evidence of anything but it does suggest that this is a new avenue of research and that it, it does, does give great hope for cousins who might want to marry. <laughs> a consanguineous joke. Is that, is that the only practical application of this? Because, you know, there, there are valid reasons one imagines why nature sort of selects out consanguineous unions to fail. Uh, genetic diversity, etc., etc., increasing the gene pool. Absolutely. <laughs> All those good reasons. Thank you very much for that contribution, SK. Dr Moto, do you have anything? It's the elephant in the room. Slightly more scientific <laughs> to offer. <laughs> What's your perspective on the research? <laughs> Well, I think, um, uh, you know, when you're thinking about um, being able to engineer um, genetic material so that um, uh, children born or people, humans born, will be more compatible with life, um, more generally speaking, brings into um, discussion, um, you know, the recent advancements scientists have made in being able to, again, engineer uh people's um, genes and um, implant from the point of um, life starting as an uh, implanted embryo and being able to uh, uh, engineer out potential um, uh, congenital diseases. Um, So one of the more recent studies um, looked into uh, trying to engineer out um, a condition called um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a um, congenital disease that um, in in these cases people have a thickened um, heart muscle um, and it predisposes them to have spontaneous and often unpredictable um, cardiac arrests. Um, It's it's very rare as it is, um, but, uh, you know, there's increasing work being done into... um, how this uh, gene mutation can be picked up and then removed um, through uh, repeated, um, I suppose, uh, uh, um, sampling with um, healthy genes. Um, and it brings into uh, question a lot of um, uh, ponderances about you know, whether it's our right to be doing this and um, whether it's ethically correct to be doing this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I thought the interesting thing about that article, to move away from niacin for a moment, was in fact they used the sperm from a man who had um, this genetic disease, which is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and um, and they looked at embryos created with that sperm, human embryos. What they actually were able to do was splice out the gene for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in human embryos. I think that's that is that is really groundbreaking and and super amazing. I mean, speaking about the niacin story, that's a lot earlier in its evolution towards being useful for humans. 
Um, although it does suggest that maybe people should think about taking B vitamin supplements at some point during their pregnancy. Sorry, SK, you had something to say? Yeah, there's a dark side to this technology as well. I mean, uh, Moto was talking earlier about issues of health equity and, you know, the uh, the first people who are going to start making use of gene splicing technology to uh, probably not uh, towards the goal of reducing birth defects in their offspring but towards producing designer babies, you know, and uh, genetic selection of... Uh, what one would consider a genetically advantageous offspring are going to be people who have the uh, the means to do so. And uh, I think it's, there's a dark side to genetic engineering which we shouldn't lose track of as well in this debate. It's all very well using it to, to save lives and, and reduce birth defects for, for cousins who marry, like through niacin supplementation. That's less controversial for me than splicing in an element of a gene to confer a survival trait on one's offspring at the expense of people who can't afford that technology. Yes, I suppose though the counter to that argument is that this is a specific gene defect that they're splicing out um, and things like intelligence or eye colour or hair colour are much more complex, or at least we think they're much more complex. But you're right, I suppose, if we if we advance our understanding of genetic coding for all sorts of phenotypical changes and differences in offspring, then even inevitably we'll become it will become possible for us to do that. I suppose the problem is it will inevitably become possible um, and I don't know that we can ever prevent that from occurring. So maybe it would be more appropriate to try and develop um, a system of laws and ethical approaches to that eventuality rather than saying we just can't ever do it because it'll happen, you know. Lots of things are possible that doesn't uh, equate to the fact that we should be doing them necessarily. Mm. So, yeah, I do worry about it. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a little bit like... uh, I don't know if you heard in the news recently, there's um, been a discussion about banning uh, homicidal bots. Did you hear about this? Uh, uh, autonomous robots that can kill humans without direction. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So they don't exist yet as far as I know, but in advance of their you know, eventual development, which we can sort of see happening off in the distance, we're kind of developing a, a bit of a framework about how to, how to manage this future threat. And I think that that's a reasonable way to approach you know, genetic manipulation as well. Because, you know, it's coming. What, what interested me about that autonomous killing robot debate is the level at which it was uh, conducted. I mean, people like Elon Musk are buying into it. Yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, he, you would think he's on the forefront of research and innovation and he sees a danger in it. It's, it's the, the whole Skynet hypothesis at the end of the day. At some point, if we make our machines more intelligent than us, you know, they won't necessarily see a reason to keep us around. What's the Skynet hypothesis? Oh, from you haven't seen the Terminator series of no, films? No, okay, right. Okay, I'm probably the only person alive who hasn't I'll, actually I'll didn't get it that to reference. You later. Thank yeah. you, I appreciate that. <laughs> and then I'll go home and watch all the movies in sequence this afternoon. Uh-huh. But you're right, SK. This this is not a new idea um, that you know um, superior artificial intelligence might one day be harmful to us. You know um, this. Um, uh, safety net, let's say, was programmed into Robocop when he first appeared on screen in 1987. He yeah, was yeah. not allowed to um, uh, hurt uh, people that programmed him. Yeah, and was it Philip K. Dick who wrote those all those um, uh, rules for robots? No, that was Isaac Asimov, The oh, Three Laws of Robotics. Go. But they get quoted again and again, even yeah. in... Uh, in, in literate scientific debate you mm, know, about mm. uh, safeguards that we should put in and you know this trope of uh, our creations becoming more powerful than us and eventually destroying us you know we see it in the, the recent Alien Covenant movie as well where you know the android turns bad because he realised he was more powerful than his creators <laughs> 
SK, surely you've seen this um, sci-fi romance um, called Her, starring um, oh, yes. Joaquin Phoenix and yeah, yeah. Scarlett Johansson, although you never the voice regrettably Scarlett ever Johansson, see yes. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Well, yeah, falling in love with an operating system, but I, I guess to take that uh, one step back into current reality, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about the rise of sex bots, you know, robots are being developed <laughs> presumably for primarily men to use uh, to obviate the need for a sexual partner. Quite realistic-looking female robots. Really? Mm. Wow. That has so many implications, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's the logical extension of the blow-up doll at the mm. end of the day, but, uh, you know, what are we using our technology for? <laughs> I mean, in some ways, <laughs> in some ways it might mean that <clears throat> a lot of other things which seem to be coercive and pretty unpleasant might become unnecessary. So that's probably good. It could be much worse. It, re- it could be, you know, one of those alien girlfriends that um, turn out to be um, a man-eating machine, and oh, that's like been around uh, since the 60s. Natasha Henstridge in Species. In Species. Yes. Is this another movie I need to see? Okay. Good. I need, need to get it. out more. Really. <laughs> no, I need to stay in more. I need to get a Netflix subscription and sit around. I'm, I'm getting you a Netflix subscription for your birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll make use of it and educate myself. Species and Terminator. We've come a long way from niacin, the new B12 <laughs> and folate, I gather. So now we might just move to the third segment of our show today, which is SK talking about some of the archetypes in that great myth of our times. Uh, Star Wars, something that has informed nearly everybody's childhood, actually, over the generations in the last, what, 30, 45 years? How long well, n- 1977, when Star Wars first broke onto the scene, introducing us to a universe of great technical, technological advancement where somehow they seem to have lost the ability to manufacture high-quality fa- high cotton. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's become a cultural icon in its own right over the last 40 years, and it amazes me that it's actually been so long since Star Wars came out. Uh, mm. But uh, we all grew up with it. And one of the, the things I'd like to try and convince you of this morning is that uh, Star Wars became so successful because a lot of the themes contained within it are universally resonant. And uh, this gets back to uh, mythology and the archetypes of myth. If you think about uh, all societies, and I'm not just restricting this to Western society, but all societies have their mythologies, you know, whether it's uh, Bible stories such as Noah's Ark, the myth of the Great Flood and so forth, uh, the legends of King Arthur and so on, every society will have its great tales. And you might think that there's almost an infinite variety of tales that humankind can tell about itself, but uh, people who know about such things have really condensed down knowledge of storytelling to there being only, at, at its core, about seven key stories in humankind. And every story or narrative or myth that might uh, arise really can be drawn back to one of these seven archetypal stories. Uh, these are, in no particular order, stories that deal you. with... Sorry? I was oh. going to ask you if you've got a list. Fortunately, I've anticipated your question, and I have, <laughs> Thank yeah. You. The first is, you know, overcoming the monster. You know, there's something out there that needs to be defeated, and someone does it. There's a, a rags-to-riches story. There's a quest archetype, where somebody is sent out on a great journey and has to achieve something. A variant on that is stories of voyage to places and return, usually leading in personal growth as a result. Then there's comedies, tragedies and stories of rebirth. 
And really, every story that you can imagine or name can be reduced to one of these seven archetypal journeys. Um, and they are so important and they're so timeless because they contain something that, that speaks to our own personal growth and development. Isn't that right? Like the quest story is usually about, um, you know, attaining maturity over the course of, you know, overcoming obstacles or learning more about yourself or about what you're capable of. And and I presume that a lot of the others have these sort of kernels of um, human experience embedded within them. That's why, they, that's why they're so important, right? Yeah, they are universal and they are relatable. And you're quite right, this sort of hero's journey of personal growth and maturation is perhaps the, the commonest archetypal story. And perhaps the resonance there is that every human being, uh, as we age and develop, we're faced with this challenge of transforming our identities. You know, when we're growing up, we face the challenge of moving from adolescence into adulthood. For example, when we're learning our trade, we transform ourselves from apprentices in many ways with the, the hope of becoming a master. So human growth and human transformation is a, is a, a universal journey for us all. So we seek out stories that speak to us. And, you know, Star Wars is a great example of the, the hero's journey archetype. And the key point in all of these hero's journeys stories is that the hero's not a hero in the beginning. He must become a hero, a hero through this process of uh, personal growth and transformation. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is, is talk you through the archetypal hero's journey story. And as we're doing it, think how these things might relate to the original Star Wars, you know, and to some extent some of the, the sequels as well, or prequels at least. Only the good ones. Only the good ones, yeah. yeah. We'll leave out things in relation to Jar Jar Binks. Yes. <laughs> That's probably the, more about tragedy, isn't it, really? Well, the most overrated line in cinema history that uh, that didn't resonate with audiences, I think, was in the second of the prequels when uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi meets Jar Jar again and his opening line is, good to see you again, Jar Jar. I don't think anybody <laughs> resonated with that line. No, I think yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the hero's journey begins by necessity with uh, a point of departure. And typically prior to departure, our hero is living the common life. And uh, with Luke Skywalker, he was living with his uncle and aunt on a water farm or something on Tatooine. You can't get more common than that. So the stage is set by setting our every man up, uh, doing nothing particularly exceptional. He then receives a call to adventure by a mentor figure, which obviously in Star Wars was the, the aged Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I think that that's about all of us because, of course, we are all the common folk. But I think we all need to have a belief that we're capable of, of greater things if we were called upon and that there's something about us which is as yet undiscovered. We'd um, all like to think that. And yeah. in many ways, you know, hope is one of the, the things that keeps us going. Yep. And, you know, if, the, if we all have the hope that uh, one day things might be better than, than they are, it's, it's a reason to keep on going, I suppose. But uh, Luke re received the call to adventure from Obi-Wan Kenobi who, who played on Luke's sense of honour. You know, this was set up as a noble quest to pick up where your father left off and do great things for the galaxy and uh, save lots of people. And it was in the form of a, a call to arms, if you like, against the menacing foe, which in, in Star Wars, of course, was the evil galactic empire. And the hero, when faced with such a call to arms, usually is reluctant to proceed immediately. There's usually a sense of commitment to his more mundane things that prevents him from responding to this challenge that has been arised. So usually there's uh, some refusal of this call to arms. 
which is typically broken by an act that shatters the hero's world. And in Luke's case, we discovered that uh, stormtroopers had visited the water farm and killed his aunt and uncle. And this, in him, despite him having originally refused Kenobi's call to follow in his father's footsteps, this was the catalyst for him to accept the hero's call. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I keep on thinking of all these other stories that I loved as when I was a kid. So obviously all the Lord of the Rings, and particularly The Hobbit, actually, um, that has a very strong... Um, beginning sort of frame which sounds a lot like what you're talking about and I don't know if anyone else has read these but the David Eddings books um the yeah anyway the, the lots and lots of fantasy novels and science fiction novels have this at, as, at their core as this sense that you need to step outside your usual existence that something cataclysmic happens which means that you then have to operate in a completely different a different universe Yes, and this is entirely the point, really. You know, they are archetypal and, uh, you know, both Frodo and Bilbo refused the call in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, respectively, and there was a catalyst which led them to take it on. And it was by an old, wise mentor figure in the form of Gandalf against a universal foe, the dark eye of Sauron. So, you know, these stories just play themselves over and over. It resonates perfectly with uh, a lot of animation um, stories as well, you know, the Disney, the Pixar movies. I mean, as I was hearing, um, listening to what you were saying just now, SK, I mean, I just kept thinking about The Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect example. Perfect. We're all showing our little biases here, aren't we? You're clearly a Disney man, Moto. Though now Star Wars is Disney, of course, so you're okay. The next stage in the hero's journey is he acquires weapons. He's set up with the skills and uh, some sort of magical talisman to enable him to complete his quest. And often these weapons are uh, bestowed by the mentor as well, some form of supernatural aid. So in the case of Luke Skywalker, it was introduction to the Force and being given his father's lightsaber. In Lord of the Rings, of course, it was the acquisition of the Ring of Power. Yes, but I mean, I don't want to keep harping on this whole idea about internal growth, um, which is mirrored by you know overcoming external ob- obstacles. But all of these powers are not external; they're they're found within, and particularly the Force. He has to use and learn to understand himself, and and that's how he then becomes powerful. It's all about sort of personal growth, really, isn't it? It is, but it also underlines to me the value of the mentor in all of this. You know, it sends the message that left to our own devices, we're not going to be able to complete this journey, so we need somebody to guide us along the way, and whether our mentor is a a parent uh, or a literal father figure is something that comes through again and again in these films. Or a baboon. Or a baboon. Yeah, we're back onto the Lion King here, aren't we, Moto? Baboons are quite wise. But the other thing is it doesn't have to be a parental figure. It's much more a teacher sort of figure, isn't it? Someone who comes from somewhere else and provides you with knowledge that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Yes, literally a mentor. But the archetype is the wise old man or the wizard, you know, in Jungian psychology. That's the Jungian archetype that we're talking about here. Mm. Once the hero has acquired weapons, there's usually some sort of minor challenge, which is referred to in archetypal lore as... uh, crossing the first threshold. It involves a process of gathering allies or partners to accompany you on your quest. So whether it's Han Solo and Chewbacca or a group of dwarves or other hobbits or whatever. Uh, And then the group uh, in the early stages of of their journey encounter what's called a threshold guardian, the the first challenge. And uh, usually this threshold guardian is irrelevant to the main plot. It's just some evil character that they stumble across along the way they're just an obstacle that needs to be overcome and if you're thinking the hobbit you know you think of the the three trolls that uh, kidnapped the dwarves and the hobbit in the woods i think of shelob 
Shelob, uh, that's a, quite an advanced uh, obstacle. It's in, right. it's in the third book, Sorry. so it's an advanced guardian. It's a higher-level boss for the millennials out there who can only relate to uh, video game terminology. But in Star Wars, it was the, uh, the two ruffians in the cantina, uh, you know, who challenged Luke, and he was completely uh, overwhelmed by that fairly minimal threat that Ben Kenobi then uh, disposed of. And this, this threshold guardian is usually disposed of uh, by the mentor figure as an illustration of his or her power. There's then a stage where the hero enters the belly of the whale, uh, so-called, and, and this was the Death Star in the Star Wars franchise. Uh, there's a revelation during the adventure proper that changes the character in some central way, and in Star Wars it's the discovery perhaps that Darth Vader was his father, and, you know, that was the big confrontation and reveal in the second film. There's often uh, an element of rescuing a maiden or rescuing a princess, literally, which we see in a lot of the Disney stuff, and again with Princess Leia in, in Star Wars, and the princess represents the archetype of the anima, the, the female life force, if you like, who's a, a representation of female beauty and sensitivity, uh, engendering a, a sense of passion within the male psyche as a further catalyst of growth. There's other elements in the hero's journey that include some component of atonement with the father. There's often some conflict between the child and his parents at some level, and bringing that conflict to some resolution is a key part of the hero's journey, and uh, we see elements of that in Star Wars, of course, through the uh, reunification of Luke Skywalker and his, his father, the ex-corporeal uh, Darth Vader at the end of the third film. The hero's journey is often accompanied at some stage in the journey by loss of the mentor as well. And we know that Obi-Wan Kenobi was cut down on the Death Star. Death Star. Maybe, that maybe that's not a spoiler anymore. That's right. So it's certainly not a spoiler. Okay. For those of us who've seen <laughs> the film, of course. Sure. In, in the prequels, you know, Ben Kenobi himself lost his mentor in Kijong. Uh, and again, the, the sequels really showed the hero's journey of Ben Kenobi at that point. I don't know whether the baboon died in the Lion King motto. You might be able to... Probably of old age. Probably I mean, the movie's, age, yeah. what, 25 years old now? That's right. Lion King, when was that released? 1994? <laughs> it seems to conform pretty closely to all of these things that SK's yes, been talking absolutely. about, though, yeah. Take your point. Yeah. When uh, Luke Skywalker lost his mentor, of course, he was replaced by another one uh, in the form of Yoda, who again guided him into the personal growth and sent him into the belly of the whale in, in the cave on uh, the, the planet where Yoda was living, where he had to battle this fictional representation of Darth Vader with his lightsaber. He beheaded the character, the mask fell off and Luke's face was underneath. So, you know, this was an element of the, the family conflict that he would have to overcome as well. But it's not always resolved, is it? Like, you know, it's never going to be the case that um, Luke and his ghostly father are going to sit down and have a cup of coffee together, right? Well, they did at the end of Empire Strikes Back, but the uh, father couldn't hold the cup because he was like a spirit. <laughs> but, you know, Ben Kenobi came back and it was all... Lots of Ewoks were present, as I recall, and it was all very happy, mm. yeah. The end of the hero's journey is the hero's return, you know, um, possibly to his place of origin where he's received with honour, but uh, the hero's actions become validated and we see Luke and his compatriots uh, receiving awards at the end of the first Star Wars film and again that scene is played out in the, uh, the first prequel. Uh, there's a big awards ceremony at the end where the group get rewarded and validated for their heroism. So did George Lucas stumble across all of this by accident, I'm asking, or 
you know, is it a subconscious replaying of archetypal plots? There was, in fact, an element of forethought to uh, George Lucas when he was writing Star Wars. He actually engaged the services of a Jungian analyst or person who published widely on Jungian themes called uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, who was born in 1904 and survived to 1987. And uh, Campbell was a professor of comparative literature and mythology at the Sarah Lawrence College for a period of about 40 years in the US. And he was immersed in Freud and Jung during his early life. So we learned a lot about Jungian psychology in particular and how these archetypal figures that Jung talked a lot about appear in a lot of uh, both Western and Eastern and ancient literature. So truly uh, universal themes. Uh, Campbell's major literary work was uh, an academic piece called The Hero with a Thousand Faces that was published in 1949 and George Lucas had already written the first two drafts of his Star Wars script when he rediscovered this book in 1975 and it became a blueprint for the hero's journey for Luke Skywalker in that film and uh, Lucas formed an enduring friendship with uh, Joseph Campbell in, in later years and indeed employed him as a, uh, a consultant uh, a Jungian analyst consultant on the uh, the Star Wars films. You've already alluded to the Lord of the Rings as being a, a similar uh, hero's journey. If you think about many superhero movies, uh, you've, you know you've talked about the works of Philip K. Dick, for example. But you know Batman would probably be a a good example of the hero's journey as well with those sort of recurrent themes and uh, interestingly the Matrix trilogy of films as well where you've got Neo leading a largely unremarkable suburban life he meets Morpheus, takes the blue pill goes down into the belly of the whale and confronts evil in the form of Agent Smith so uh, the more things change uh, the more they stay the same both in cinema and literature Oh, fascinating that's fabulous. I want you to come back and talk about all the other archetypes as well. Maybe we could do a, a standing series. It would be the series. same talk, unfortunately. But, yeah, there are other archetypes <laughs> in film and, and we there can talk about seven those. seven archetypes. <laughs> I know. Seven there's archetypal seven. stories. There's, there's more months. archetypal figures, actually. And the wizard is an interesting one and we've, we've alluded to the wizard on a couple of occasions already this morning. But, yeah, can do. Thank you very much. Okay, that might have to be all for us today. I know I really wanted to talk about erasing bad memories through PTSD, but actually that might have to wait for another day. I'm very sorry, everybody. Thank you very much to SK and Dr Moto and to Kent, who has survived this, my first opportunity to run the show <laughs> with his sense of humour intact, which is fantastic. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everybody. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.